Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. I hope you're all having a wonderful Thursday. This week, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Adrian Goldsworthy. Adrian studied at Oxford, where his doctoral thesis examined the Roman army. So as you can imagine, he's from the UK. So we get to listen to his glorious English accent today. And we had a great conversation about his new novel, which is called The Fort. And he'll tell us all about it in the interview. It's a little bit of a longer interview, so I won't keep you with a long description at the beginning. We'll just get right to my conversation with Adrian Goldsworthy. Adrian, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, your latest novel, The Fort, released on June 10th in, in the UK and August 1st in the US, I believe. It has rave reviews. Can you tell me about this book? Well, it's it's a sort of hybrid in a sense in that it has some characters from a trilogy I wrote, the, the Vindlander stories, a few years ago. But it's also set up so that if you haven't read those, I think you should be able to follow it. And it's it's a different location, although it's the same time period of early in the second century AD during the reign of the Roman Emperor Trajan. Um, you should be able to follow the story and enjoy it, hopefully. So it's it's trying to to please everybody, really, the new readers and the ones who've come across my stuff before. So it, okay. the Vindlander stories are essentially just Westerns that happen to be set on the frontier of northern Britain, the Roman Empire in turn of the first, early second century AD. And this one is similar, though slightly more perhaps of a war book than uh, than just a Western. But again, plenty of Westerns have those in them as well. So, Right. Sure. So can you tell me kind of the, the elevator pitch? Yes. I mean, the main story, the main character is Flavius Ferox, who's from one of the tribes of Britain, but he's been, as a teenager, sent to the Roman Empire to be educated. He's been made a Roman citizen and officer in the Roman army a century, and after years on various frontiers, he's been put in charge of a unit of Britons from the tribe called the Brigantes, many of whom are recent rebels or criminals and convicts and sent beyond the Danube into the the border area with the kingdom of Dacia. The Romans have just fought a war with them a couple of years ago. Another one is clearly brewing, and they're stuck there in the, the most exposed position, and they're being used by various powers behind the scenes on both sides to provoke an incident and manipulate it. So it's it's mostly the human story of these people who get end up trapped in the fort of the title as a much larger enemy army closes around them and how they try to survive, how they deal with each other. But it's also the intrigues going on and it's trying to say something about what happens when these cultures meet, but also how the Roman Empire worked, how maybe some of these other kingdoms worked, and how people just had to live their lives caught up in all of this that wasn't really of their making. So it's it's how they cope. So it's it's a, a story of Roman soldiers, officers, some of their families, and also we we see it from the Dacian side as well of this idealistic young nobleman who's beginning to question things as he gets told to do some things he's not sure right and sees people who are in high office who are clearly not fit. So it's it's a mix of everything, but hopefully it's just an adventure story, good good escapism, something to relax and visit another world from the comfort of your armchair. Right. So it's not too dangerous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It sounds so fast paced and exciting. What inspired you to write this novel? 
it's a mixture, really. As I say, some of the characters come from from earlier stories, and you know, you do just find you right. you get very fond of people. They start to become terribly real to you, even though you you've made them up. Yes. Um, and I wanted to see them. The earlier stories were all set in northern Britain. It was very much about the the frontier there. So I thought, well, let's take Britons and send them and make them realize how big the Roman Empire is, how much bigger the world is than anything they've seen before. Um, so do that. And then the situation, really, it, it's all set around. It builds up gradually to the point where you know, building up to this war and then the big attack comes. And how do they cope? My day job is as a nonfiction writer of ancient history. I've spent a lot of time studying the Roman army and looking at Roman army bases and the archaeological remains. It's it's trying to think of those actually occupied by real people living their lives in real time, in this case, during a crisis. But um, so it, it's, it's, it's fun for me exploring how these things might have been as well and trying to play around with some ideas. So it's it's come from all of those roots. And then I'm not a great planner when it comes to stories in that I, I have my characters, I have the sort of the, the key events, but mm-hmm. really you start and I find it seems to develop naturally. They, they go off and do their own thing. Yes. And a lot of what happens rather surprises you, but it, it just seems natural. It's almost as if you're describing a movie you're watching in your head and it's sort of going on and you're, you're just trying to put that into words. So um, that's, that's my method such as it is. <laughs> Yes, well I'm glad to hear that because I write in a similar way. I'm not I'm not a good planner good, either. That's, that's so. reassuring. Very reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know why that's reassuring to you, but it's reassuring to me. <laughs> you, know, you meet these meticulous authors who've got everything planned down to the last detail oh, I know. almost the page number it's going to happen, this sort of thing. And I, I just couldn't do that. So. I yeah, I I often wish that I could because I think that it would be a little less scary to write a story if if I knew it was going to happen. But yeah, I wonder if it's less exciting you know. though. There's you get to a yes, point where I want to know what's I, going to happen. You know, it's less, and, it's, and I'm not yes. sure yet. So, um, and some of the things I thought were going to happen don't seem to be working out. And it, it's uh, um, it's it can be upsetting. You get more involved. I think it's it, it uh, yes in the story if you don't know what's going. It's, <laughs> yeah, I think of that too. You're right. So you mentioned that you want people to be able to escape with this novel and just um, be able to travel without leaving their their armchair. Um, do you have anything else that in mind that readers can take away from this novel? I hope there are, I mean, apart from the historian in me trying to make this as plausible a reconstruction of a world that mm-hmm. we know through very partial evidence. There's lots of things about the Roman period we don't know. And when you come to some of the other cultures involved, like the Dacians, who didn't write anything down, you're dealing with right. very limited Roman sources that always see them as an enemy anyway. So trying to piece that together with little fragments you hear about their religion, about their beliefs, about the, the archaeological evidence that tells you something about their lifestyle, but leaves lots out. It's trying mm-hmm. to put that all together and create something that it could have been like this. Um, so that's quite important for me, but that's my my particular slant on things. I'd like to think that when people are reading the story, they can believe in it. You know, They, they can occupy the world, at least sus- suspend disbelief enough to feel that this matters, that they're involved with it. But it's, it's more about the little things. It, it's how people behave. And I don't mm. see myself as writing, you know, profound literature with great insights into the human condition, but 
I hope it's convincing. I hope it's a good story. And you can get yeah. a flavor for a time and a place through a novel much faster than you can through reading nonfiction. Yes. Because hopefully the author's done a lot of that work for you, <laughs> but it's giving you that sort of sense, the smells, the tastes, the, just the way people behave. Um, even if some of it, you know, one of my biggest problems is we have absolutely no idea how people would have spoken. Right. And, you know, got knowledge of Latin and Greek, but it's all very formal. Yes. Or you might have a letter that's personal, but there's not the equivalent. You know, you can read Jane Austen, say, and you get an idea of how at least a certain group of people within Britain in Regency England would have spoken, their manners, how they behaved, how they address each other. Right. With the Roman period, there just isn't that information. So you've got to try and create with what you know about the social system, about the, the, the customs. So it's, um, it's trying to make something come alive and real yes when all these things are very important but it, it's so so it's it's yes it's a, it's a mixture really right there's quite a challenge in, involved in that i i've got various um friends who are archaeologists and ancient historians so they're probably being polite but i i, I like to run it past them on the basis of could this you know could it have worked this way <laughs> is, is there any way you can catch me out and as long as it becomes a matter of opinion or that's possible even if Sometimes I'll do something in a way that I don't actually think is the most likely way to reconstruct the evidence we've got. But it is it is one way you could do it. It's it's plausible enough to make it worth using in a story. Right. It works on that level. Sure. Right. So The Fort is the first installment of your City of Victory series. Yeah. What can you tell us? Can you tell us anything about the rest of the series? Well, the second one is called The City. And that one's been written and has gone into my editor. So that'll be out same sort of timing next year. And that takes them away, not all the characters, but Ferox and some of the others. This moves them to the eastern frontier, and they're beyond the river Euphrates in one of the, the small semi-independent kingdoms that tried to exist between the Parthian Empire on one hand, what's sort of modern-day Iran, that area in Iraq, and um, mm. the Roman Empire on the other. So that's a few years on. That's, that's also about a siege. But in this case, it's the Romans who are trying to get into a city um, mm -hmm. But we have one character like the, the Dacian character, Brassus, in, in the fort. We have a Roman army deserter, a man who's been um, sort of outed as a Christian, basically, and had to run, um, who is inside the city to give an idea of the sort of what it's like to be inside and the mixture of communities you had in that part of the world. So, again, we, we see it from both sides, and hopefully we feel for both sides as well. Right. And then the third one, which I, I've not written yet, will be called The Wall. And that mm. will bring us back to Northern Britain and it'll be set around about the time when they actually build Hadrian's Wall. Okay. So it brings together different themes. So that's that's the plan anyway. <laughs> but that one that one I won't be writing until this time next year. Okay, but you've already written a nonfiction book about Hadrian's Wall. Yes. Correct? Yes. So uh, it's it partly gives me a chance to play out some of these ideas. And I was just up there a couple of weeks ago. Mm. looking at a lot of sites in a different way because I'm thinking of how I'm going to be writing the novel. Right. And when you focus down, you know, archaeologists will blithely talk about 10 years, 20 years, a generation or so, and the developments over that period. With a novel, you're wondering, well, what's actually there in this month of this year? And a lot of questions about, this is a big project. It's not built instantly. Mm -hmm. um, we 
have no good ancient evidence at all as to why it was built. Right. So it's trying to, the background to the story, although it'll be much more, the main plot will be much more personal, Mm -hmm. will be just why this thing's happening, why they do this thing they don't do anywhere else in the world (laughs) in Northern Britain, um, and why there are so many apparent changes of plan in the way it's laid out. And the order in which it's built seems to to hint at various things. And even... um, the level of from environmental archaeology, you can tell that some places they've cleared a forest to build this thing. In a lot of others, they're actually building it over ploughed fields. Oh. And you have the marks of the ploughs underneath this. So you, know, you can imagine some poor farmer has been there for probably generations. And <laughs> the Romans going, sorry, we're we just going to build this through your land. Um, so it's, yeah. it's trying to give that sense of for, for everybody. And just why this, you know, this is a huge, huge change to everybody. And it's a dramatic thing, and it's a fit. Yes. And I quite like. I haven't in the fort the, the the place where the events occur is is fictional. It's like places that exist in Romania, but I to give myself a bit of freedom, I made up the actual location. Um, but mm-hmm. it's quite nice with the earlier stories and with the the uh, with the wall, where my little bit of vanity, the historical note at the end that tells people what I've made up, where the evidence is. To mm-hmm. actually say, well, you can go. This is a bit set. If you ever want to, you can go there, or you can look it up on Google Earth, and you can see the the uh, the landscape and what it's like, what you can see from there. Um, so it was. It, um, it, wow. it just gives you that that little touch of reality that's quite hard to get otherwise with something set in such um, so distant past. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I write about more recent history, and so. When you go back so far in history, it must be very challenging to do. The it research. is. I mean, as I say, it's my day job writing nonfiction. So I've been been doing this for years, yes. and I've I've always loved historical novels. And for a long time, I actually fought shy of writing anything set in the Roman world because I <laughs> I was worried that I'd make something up, and then with a few years, forget that I'd made it up, and I'd be looking in the sources for some bit of evidence that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> And also that it was just a little bit too close to what I was doing the rest of the time. But it, over time, you just you start thinking of stories and you think, I've got to write this. Yeah. So it's it's. But there are problems, as I said earlier. How did people address each other? How did they speak? Um, right. This sort of thing you can't. And many of the the questions that I would never, as a historian, think of asking. A novelist mm-hmm. needs to know. You need to know what people are wearing, what they yes. eat, how they prepare it, what the smells are like when they're sitting. So. It, it's very good, actually, from an academic point of view, is it makes you ask lots of questions you've never asked before. And mm-hmm. sometimes those answers or the potential answers are very interesting. Um, yes. And it crunches up a different – because we all – the most serious scholar will still have a sort of mental picture of what it was like, even mm-hmm. if they, they, they're barely conscious of it. And that can be shaped by all sorts of things in movies and old books and assumptions. And uh, so it's it's worth thinking about it. But it's – it is a different sort of problem. It it gives you a lot of freedom in some respects in that there are some things where you, you do have to make it up because we simply don't know. Right. On the other hand, that's frustrating because you've got less to work with. So, um, you know, I, I, a few years ago, I wrote some novels set in the uh, Peninsula War and Duke of Wellington's campaigns against Napoleon, mm. where there's a vast amount of evidence. And yes. suddenly you're in an era where people are, they're diarists, they're writing letters, mm-hmm. you know, even those ordinary soldiers, let alone junior officers and more senior people, there's just so much more material that exists only in fragments. I mean, the the Vindolanda stories were inspired by 
the Vinlander writing tablets, these letters from um, the fort that's that's a couple of miles south of where Hadrian's Wall will be. But these these letters date to twenty years or so before the wall, and they're the first story is based around this birthday invitation from the wife of the commander of one Roman garrison to the wife of uh, another garrison, His, uh, sorry, the commander of another garrison, mm-hmm. and it's birthday party to be held on the 11th of September. We don't know which year, but it's probably around about 100-ish. Um, and, you know, will you mm-hmm. come and it, it's... So is this is this a real... It's real. It's, it's, um, oh, it's written okay. on... Thin bits of wood they used instead of paper because papyrus mm-hmm. was expensive to transport up to Britain. Okay. Um, and because of the peculiar conditions of this site at Vindolanda, where it's um, become waterlogged and then it's, it's sealed the layers without any oxygen in, wood and um, leather and all these normal perishable things have survived. So you have on this this letter from to written to a lady called Sulpicia Lepidina, who's the... the wife of the garrison commander at Vindolanda. And it's written in one handwriting, which is presumably that of a scribe. And then at the end, the woman who's dictating it has just added, you know, and uh, it will please me so much if you come. That's probably the first handwriting by a woman from anywhere in Europe. Wow. And it's just turned up. And until these were discovered a few decades ago, you know, nothing like this had turned up in, in Roman Britain at all. And unfortunately, most of the letters, that one's right. fairly completed, but it's, you know, it's the sort of invitation you'd write today. It's pretty brief because they know who, the, you know, they know who they yes. are. But in other letters by the two, between these two, we find out about their children. And because there's lots of the leather stuff has turned up from the site, one of a slipper, um, a sort of ornate um, shoe belonging to Sulpicia Lepidina with a name on it, and also the sort of designer label of the, the, um, the workshop in Gaul that's made the thing, that's turned up as well. So, and we've got the shoes mm-hmm. of the the children. They seem to have had about three children. And because they're children, they're growing all the time. So you get the discarded pairs of shoes they've grown out of because, again, this is a family that's wealthy enough. They don't have to keep reusing it. Right. In the same way that the slipper was thrown out yes. because the sort of um, thong or whatever would be the bit for the toe, uh, between, or between the toes that hold on, that had broken. And someone of that wouldn't repair it. No, I'll just get some new ones. Um, So you've got these glimpses of this personal life. And before all of this came through, it it hadn't really, no one had noticed that in the sources, it was quite clear that a lot of Roman officers were taking their, their wives and their children with them to what we would consider pretty bleak postings. But they're there for several years. So the whole mm-hmm. family moves to a, a house that built in the center of one of these camps is actually compares quite favorably with the best houses in Pompeii. Um, but yes. it's built there in the middle of nowhere and it's built initially of wood. So it's, it's um, only in the later forts to get stone ones, but it's built to give them the same lifestyle. And the fact that they're sending letters and birthday invitations and they're, they're doing other things, they're meeting up socially, they're clearly doing the same sort of things that the gentle folk, as it were, would do, whether they were living in Italy or Spain or whatever. Right. They're carrying this out right on, as far as we're concerned, the edge of the world and as far as they're concerned. Yeah. Within only a few years of the Romans getting here. So it, it changes completely the idea of this purely military frontier with just soldiers facing barbarian warriors and gives you a much more nuanced sense of this isn't a fort, it's it's more like a garrison town. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 
the the women and children of the ordinary soldiers there as well. It, it's it's much more of a community. There's a lot more going on, and the the goods to which they have access are pretty much those you get anywhere in the Roman world. They're, things are being transported hundreds, even thousands of miles because wow. people want to buy them there. So they are right. plugged into the whole Roman system and culture and this this em, empire, and yet they're right, you know, literally on the edge. Yeah. Um, and that's all happened in a very short time since they got the, the Romans arrived in the region. So it again changes it, but then you can look at some of the other sites nearby of the, the roundhouses with thatched huts that the locals are living in, and they start to get Roman goods in them. But in other respects, their lifestyle seems to be exactly the same as it's been for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got this cheek by jowl and trying to make sense of how they're seeing each other. And then when you realize that the Romans are Roman in inverted commas, in that even if they're Roman citizens, they're unlikely to be Italians. They could be from anywhere in the Roman Empire. So you've got, you know, there, there's a tombstone a little dating to a little bit later from um, a site just to the south of Hadrian's Wall, and it's commemorating a British woman who'd been born a slave and then given her freedom, and her owner marries her. Now, obviously, you don't know within that story how much choice she had in the matter, mm-hmm. but the husband is a chap called Barates, who's come from Palmyra, which is out in Syria. And he's come all the way up there and come to Britain, and she's a girl from just north of London. That's her. She gives her tribe in Britain. Um, so you've got these people moving from one end of the world to the other. Wow. And although it's all in Latin and she's depicted as this sort of proper Roman matron sitting up in her chair with her, her weaving and, you know, in a very dignified dress and hairstyle. And then the inscription commemorating her named Regina or sort of Queen or Queenie is in Latin. At the bottom, in his own Semitic language, you've got going from right to left in this sort of cur- very cursive letters. Um, it's Regina, the wife of Barates, alas, you know, this sort of very personal message. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's these little things. It's trying to get all these, you get these glimpses, you know, these tantalizing things where you get to the lives of ordinary people. Right. But then it goes. We know no more about them yes. than the, those few bits that survive. So with a novel, you've got this chance to try and give them some life or, or people like them. and. Um, some sense of suggesting, you know, this isn't just a simple world of goodies and baddies of whether you want to see the Romans as the sort of the great civilizing force or the terrible wicked empire that's conquered everybody. Mm-hmm. These are human beings. So it, it's trying to make it real and remind us that they're, you know, they're just like us. There's good, there's bad. And they're, they're, there's most of us are a mixture. Wow. So interesting. So mm. you mentioned a couple of times your day job is writing nonfiction history. Um, so is that, how did you get pushed into writing fiction? Is, was it just the stories that would come to you as you were researching for the nonfiction? Well, it's, it's actually, funnily enough, it was something I always hoped to do. I, I always wanted to write. I didn't know whether there was any prospect of being able to do this as a, and making a live a living that way at all. But I didn't know anybody who made a living writing nonfiction history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we all read plenty of novels, so we know there are people out there who do this, and that's all they do. Yes. Um, even though there are plenty more who are writing these novels in their spare time while they're doing all <laughs> the other things um, yeah. to pay the bills. But um, I had no real idea of that I could do what I'm doing in the sense of writing the, the straightforward history. Mm-hmm. 
And I just went through the normal academic, but I thought I'd work in a university for 20 odd years and then start writing novels in, you know, in the evenings and whenever little time I had spare. And right. maybe at that point, instead, I went through the sort of classic pattern of, of an academic career, did my doctorate, finished that, got that published as my first book that's very much, very obviously a doctorate turned into a book. Mm -hmm. um, and was starting to do teaching jobs, but in the usual way, it's very hard to get established in the academic world was asked to write a coffee table book on Roman warfare oh. and did that. So I had to go from writing, you know, in your doctoral thesis, you put every single bit of information, every fact in there, anything to protect yourself from your examiners that if they find <laughs> any flaw whatsoever, you know, you don't, and you're not really caring that much about anybody reading this. It's yes. so suddenly I had to go from that level of detail and a small topic to covering in 40,000 words, a thousand years of Roman military history. Wow. Um, so that took about seven rewrites before I got it down to size. I'm sure. But the, publish, the publishers liked that um, and asked me to write another longer non-fiction book, which I, I did. And oddly, as I was going from one short-term contract or part-time teaching and all this sort of thing, the, the non-fiction took off and they kept on asking me to write more. Um, mm -hmm. And then after a few years, I sat down because I knew what I'd always wanted to do was write a historical novel. So I did that. And through that, oddly enough, got myself a literary agent who couldn't sell that novel, but got me a far better deal for the next nonfiction history. Oh, wow. Um, and that meant that it turned from being, I'd been a graduate student, I'd then been a junior lecturer, all these things, which you're used to a very low income level, <laughs> sort of fairly basic level. And I was yeah. still only in my 20s, so you didn't have the, the great great expenses of, of life. Right, right. I thought with this, suddenly, though, I got this much bigger advance, and that meant the publishers were going to push the book even more. Um, mm. With my my biography of Julius Caesar, and I thought, well, let's actually forget about trying to be a uh, going into to university jobs, and let's see if I can can write and I can get away with this because I was still young enough where I was the only you know, and single. I was the only one to get hurt if if it didn't work out. Um, and then, so the, the nonfiction kept going. And then a few years later, just as I was about to approach my agent to say, look, I really want to have a go at a novel again, mm -hmm. whether they have some sixth sense or whatever. But she said to me, well, look, I think it's about time you have another go at fiction. So, <laughs> um, and that was the, led to the six novels of the, the Napoleonic books I mentioned earlier right. that had their fan base, the people who loved them really loved them, mm -hmm. but there weren't really enough of them. For the, so after the sixth one, the publishers didn't want any more of those. But then within a week, Head of Zeus, the, the current publisher, came to me and asked me, to, would you write a Roman novel? So I pitched Vindolanda to them, and that's, you know, the, did those three, and now we're doing this trilogy. And um, so it, it's nothing has been planned. This is all, it hasn't turned out anything like the way I expected. But in a sort of indirect route, I've got around to writing novels, though, it's still, I'm probably better known for the nonfiction, I would guess. And the, those, um, and, it, and it's very nice. Now I can spend several years writing a nonfiction book, but each year I'll take three or four months off and do a novel. Right. Well, that's wonderful. And I could be thinking about the novel while, and while I'm writing the nonfiction and yeah. thinking about the, the nonfiction while I'm writing the novel. Um, and I think it it makes you think more about writing style and how you tell a story, even if that story is a biography of someone or history. Right. I, I um, would think that this makes your, your nonfiction more compelling um, 
since you know how to tell such a good story. I hope so. Although it, I'm, you know, there are quite, there's a, there's a style in popular history these days that is almost novelistic in that people will sort of imagine yeah. scenes or so. I don't do that because I want to keep a clear line between sure. when I'm writing fiction and nonfiction. Right. Um, but it certainly makes you think about, you know, the, the, and it's the it's one of the bad aspects of academic training. You sort of when you're writing a book on a theme of, of just, you know, for, for history, you'll, you'll dump an awful lot of information early on that you feel the reader needs to know. Mm-hmm. If you start telling a story, you start thinking, well, what do they actually need to know for this page and that page? And then you drip it in bit right. by bit and bit by bit, which is much more accessible. It's much more digestible yes. from their point of view. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it, I, I hope anyway, that, I mean, I, I, I suspect we all, hope that the next book is going to be better that you've yes. learned and that you're and and because you've got to fall in love with each thing you're doing right to spend that time with it um and to some extent forget what you've written before because you can't live it as intensely yes that's true um so do you find that you have any crossover between people who are reading your nonfiction and your fiction some I remember that was one of the things, I think the problems with the, when I did the Napoleonic books is that the publishers rather expected everybody who'd read my biography of Julius Caesar, say, to buy these novels and enjoy it. And it was a completely different thing, really. And it, just, you know, there are some people who have a taste for both, but right. um, I partly think of the novels are for people who, you know, want to know a bit about the past, but don't necessarily want to sit down and read lots of serious, heavy history, but they can get... Mm-hmm hopefully with you know they they can trust what they are learning and i make very clear in the historical note look i've made this bit up that bit's actually true this is where we're guessing um but it gives them a as i say that that it's it's that aim for a sense of the period a sort of feel of what it was like or what it might have been like that you can do far more quickly in with with a story because it's that much more immediate once you're you're feeling you're sympathizing with your yes. characters you want to know what happens to them then you're you're brought into the world much more quickly than when right. you've got to imagine. Well, you know, this is Roman society. Here are the senators at the top. This is you know, what they need to do um, politically. Their economic level. This is how they behave. This sort of thing. It takes much longer if you're li- if you're sort of seeing it through a character. Then it's that much more immediate. Though obviously, mm-hmm. you hope you really hope you hint at the depth behind, but you don't want to slam in loads of facts and information that they don't really need for uh, right. Yes. Well, and that that kind of um, leads right into my question that I ask all of my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think it, it in the end, whatever sort of story you're writing, the characters are going to face choices. Um, and that's something all of us will. In most cases, you know, mine, they tend mm-hmm. to be, because they get caught up in battles and skirmishes, there's a lot of pretty big choices that can have terrible consequences. And thankfully, most of us don't live that sort of life too often um, or at all. Um, but I hope it's, right. I don't know. I mean, I think you, you can't write, even the, the people that would be the villains to some extent in your book, you try and have some sympathy for them. You try and make them human a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I hope you could look at this and give a sense of, the past might be more complicated, but it's much more human than you might think. It's it's all too easy, and everybody, yeah. especially these days, and 
perhaps one of the, the unfortunate side effects of social media is people are find it easier to make up their minds very quickly and then to mm-hmm. idolize or vilify another group without really thinking about who they are and what they're doing. I've tried to show this world as, again, it's not about goodies and baddies. It's not a simple story where the Romans are either the wicked empire or they're the, the goodies that are bringing order to the, the world. There's a mixture of both. And there are good people and bad people right. on all the sides involved. And the... Um, and lots who are forced to do things they don't want to. So, but others who are just trying to do the right thing. So, my, you know, my main character of Ferox is um, partly, I think of him as Raymond Chandler's sort of shop soil Sir Galahad. You know, he's he can be pretty hard and ruthless, but basically he tries to do the right thing. And um, mm-hmm. it's important to me that whilst some pretty dreadful stuff happens in the stories. And there isn't a simple, unambiguous, yes, the good guys have won and everything. It tends to be messier than that. But nevertheless, there is essentially a morality through it. And that the the characters with whom you have most sympathy are those who are not simply selfish and um, out for themselves. Right. Um, and in Ferox's right. case, he has you know an obsession with honesty so that even when he knows that um, he's not going to be able to punish the person who's who's responsible for all this directly. He still goes for the truth, and he doesn't hide it. And it because there's an element of a sort of mystery detective story in most of them as well. Um, so it's mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I hope, as I say, the main thing that somebody gets from one of these books is pleasure and escape. And then if from that they get some interest in the right. past, that's great. And if beyond that as well, they get a sense of um, you know, in the end, as I say, the, the Vindlander ones particularly, and even in the fort as well, they have that old-fashioned Western feel about them because that's what I grew up watching on TV. You know, it, it dominated British television when I was a kid, mm-hmm. that and detective shows. Uh, yeah. But I always like Westerns because I like horses. And um, yes. <laughs> however imperfect it is, they are morality tales. And there is that sense that, yes, people will do the right thing. It might be very hard and it might cost them a lot, but they will, the, the, the people you really follow and the ones you care about in the stories will try and do, do the decent thing by the standards of their time and probably mm. rather more nicely than the standards of their time might in reality have allowed. That He's probably a bit nicer than and some of the other characters. But then right. if you, you know, I wouldn't want to write about people who were just simply brutal. Um, you know, you, you don't want it to be too depressing. This, again, right. it comes back to, there should be pleasure in this. So I've tried to put a humor throughout all the stories. And that's partly because everyone yeah. I've known who's been in the the armed forces has always had a, a very lively sense of humor. And even in these terrible situations, they make jokes. Mm-hmm. And they might be black jokes. They might be very simple jokes. But it, mm-hmm. it helps them to cope. With, you know, you hear doctors who've worked in ER rooms will say exactly the same thing to get through that. So I wanted, so some of the sort of the yes. very simple, um, obvious jokes that I'm prouder of those than I am of some of the descriptions, but I hope that, I hope people laugh as well and chuckle a few times oh, that's with great. it. I, yeah. I, because again, you, I can't take these too seriously. It's not, you know, it's, and I don't tend to read books that are too serious because again, it's a bit too depressing. So um, 
I, I don't want people to come away feeling however many sad things yeah. have happened. I don't want them to end up feeling low at the end of this. <laughs> right. Well, and it's interesting, like you mentioned the um, the message that there are good people on both sides. And I think that's very important. At least, I don't know what things are like where you live, but mm. in the US right now, things are very polarized. Um, and so I think it's it's an important thing to remember that um, we're all humans and there are humans who oppose our point of view. So I think that's a very needed message. Well, I hope so, because the, there is, and you've had it in academia, and it's it's never the, the best scholars, but you will get people who simply assert, often based on some theory, mm-hmm. this is how you must see this past, this group, this people. It's very simple. These are good. These are bad. Mm-hmm. And no one's life experience is actually that. Right. Um, so I think it, it's, we have much to say, and I, I'm, I'm something of a skeptic of, social media largely because i don't think i've got enough intelligent things to say um to sort of post things regularly i'm i'm or that i have the time to read other people's i I like to catch up with friends individually and personally rather than more generally but i think that tendency sometimes people seem to feel they put a comment on everything that happens yes when if you're not directly involved those involved have a right to say things but for most of us who are not judging people rapidly and then you know it's it shows it's it's it often has a, a level of behavior that you would the, the people who do this would not like to be treated that way themselves right so it comes back to this sense of of respect and it helps a little bit going to the sort of the distant past whether the the regency napoleonic stuff i did where honor is very important and certain types of behavior again in the ancient world there's an awful lot about showing respect to each other partly because if you don't this will prompt an aggressive, even violent reaction. If they're, they're so, it's very much this this culture of appearances. Um, right. But that's quite interesting to explore. It's just how do you treat other people? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's much easier to insult someone if you just post a tweet or whatever or message on it than it yeah. is face to face if you get to know them. And that's it, right. It's it's people need to step back and realize that uh, you know we are just all much the same. Yes. So Adrian, this has been a wonderful conversation. I know that you are not, or you don't use social media mm. as a rule, but um, what is the best way for listeners to follow you then? Um, well, I have my website, adriangoldsworthy.com, and there will be very occasional bits of news posted there, but there'll be stuff about all the books and whatever anything's coming out. I'll, I'll put it there, but they, they will rarely find out about what I'm reading or what I'm doing because it's it's pretty mundane. I don't, you know, it's, uh, I'm excited when my seven-year-old does something he hasn't done before, but um, I don't expect the wider world to be. Um, or if right, I had a nice right. meal somewhere, does you know, do I really need to take a picture and show it to everybody? I, I, it's, it's, I suppose I've got to admit I, I'm well and truly into middle age and I, I can be sort of slightly curmudgeonly and just not understand this, this, this urge to do it. Um, <laughs> and, that's, and that's perfectly, you're right. I understand. <laughs> Um, but uh, they can find out about your books on your yes. website and that, yep. that has to be enough. So that's good. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you this. again for inviting me. It's, uh, it's always a lot of fun and it's, uh, it's a good thing for authors to talk because we do spend so much time on our own, don't we? <laughs> that, uh, yes. When you're thinking about a book and living with these characters that are only in your mind, <laughs> right. uh, remind us that there are real people out there as well. <laughs> Oh, I thought the characters were real. Too. They are. That's the, well. That's the problem. That's what I sometimes worry about. And 
get terribly upset when something bad happens to one of them. It, it's it's yes. just very awesome. <laughs> it's yeah, very real. Awesome. down for a few days altogether. <laughs> you know, I had to do it for the plot. I'm sorry, but it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay, well, thank you so much, Adrian. Again, thank you for having me. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed hearing Adrian Goldsworthy talk about his book, The Fort. As always, you can find out more about Adrian and how to get his books from the show notes, which are always found at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Now, you guys know I always ask you at the end of the program, please, if you are enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked, I need you to do a few things to help the show. So the first one, of course, is subscribe to the show so that you get it delivered to you every week on whatever podcatcher is your favorite. Another thing you can do to help out is to rate and review the podcast, um, especially in Apple Podcasts. This really helps other people find the podcast. If they know something about you as a listener and they know that you like the podcast, then they're going to suggest it to other people like you. Also, I read those reviews and I really love to hear that people enjoy the podcast, that I'm not just here talking to myself. If you're on Facebook, you can also join the Facebook group. It's Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You can just search that or you can get there from the show notes. I try to keep things active in the Facebook group. Last week, I actually went live on Thursday night in the Facebook group, and it was really fun. I kind of thought I want to do that more often. I don't know if I can manage doing it every week, but it would be really fun to do it more often. So um, that's one reason to join the Facebook group. You get to kind of have input on the show and, and hear about things first before other people. Now, for those of you who want more perks and want to help out the show even more than just writing a review, I have a Patreon account where you can commit to giving a certain amount every month and you get certain benefits that go along with that. One of those benefits at a certain level, I think it's $10 a month and up, you get a monthly book review video. So I will talk about books that I've been reading and let you know both whether I recommend them, what I liked about them, what I didn't like about them, but also kind of what age I would recommend, like what the content level is like and, and whether... Um, you know, you should hand it to your teenager or not. So that's a super fun perk. But one of the other benefits at a higher level is that I will send you a book. You get to choose whichever book from that month, that month's podcast you would like to receive, and I will send that to you. So go to my Patreon page and check it out. It's patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Now, with my website, if you spell my name wrong, if you spell my name with two L's, you'll still be taken to my website. With Patreon, though, you won't. So you can get to this from my show notes, or you can just make sure you spell my name correctly. It's one L. So patreon.com slash Allison Treat, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. I would love to have you join the community there. And it's a way you can help me keep doing what I do here. So my friends, thank you so much for listening today. I am just so grateful that you've chosen to spend time listening to this podcast. And I want to leave you with a quote, as usual. Robert Penn Warren said, history cannot give us a program for the future, 
but it can give us a fuller understanding of ourselves and of our common humanity so that we can better face the future. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again 